Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast. The podcast where we talk about how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make, your, make you feel more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest this week is Jonathan Chevreau. John has been a mainstay in the Canadian financial services industry for uh, over a generation. He spent uh, almost a decade as the personal finance columnist for the Financial Post. He's been the, the editor for Money Sense magazine, and he's written uh, a regular uh, book for a, a number of years on rating mutual funds and two other books that are, that are bestsellers, uh, Victory Lab Retirement and Independence Day. And he currently works as the manager of a place called the Independence Hub, which helps people work out different challenges with regard to personal finance. John, welcome. Thanks, John. I might have to say, it's actually been two decades that I was almost at the post. <laughs> oh, wow. It's, it's funny how, how time flies. Uh, you, you, like I say, you really are a, a mainstay in the industry. So thanks so much for joining me. One of the things that we talked about before doing this, uh, doing the taping, was uh, how you had a whole history of running the gamut of being a, a person who didn't start in finance, and then you started writing in finance, and you got an advisor, and then you, you know, changed advisors and did different things, and now you're a, a bit of an advocate for do-it-yourself investing. Could you perhaps tell us about your journey? as a person who has gone sort of across the, uh, the spectrum of, of uh, financial advice. Sure, John. I, I mean, journalistically, I actually started in high tech when I was at the mm -hmm. Golden Mail in the early 80s. So I, would, I still remember interviewing like Steve Jobs and uh, Bill Gates and all these people. Um, then I went, went freelance and uh, sort of freelance high tech. And uh, anyway, long story short, I went in, back into journalism at age 40, which was the, the Financial Post. And I sort of switched from writing about technology to writing about money, personal finance, investing, et cetera. And as you said, I, you know, I wrote a bunch of uh, mutual fund guides. Back then it was you know, Gordon Pape and there was a bunch of people like Duff Young and myself and Roddy and other people who wrote uh, other mutual fund guides. Nowadays, I'd probably be doing smart ETFs instead of smart funds. Um, so in the course of doing that, um, I, uh, I, I decided that I mean, I at one point I had a full service advisor and he was very good. And actually, I still have him uh, right for the hub, as you do sometimes. Um, um, but at, at one point, his company prevailed upon him to switch uh, full service. You know, basically, we're, I was only paying commissions on trades executed. And since I was a buy and hold investor, I was quite happy with a full service advice because if you buy, you know, BCE or a bank stock and you hold it for 30 years, you're not really generating a lot of commissions there or nor are you paying. Uh, or, or subsequently, as I gradually moved from mutual funds to ETFs, same thing. I mean, happy to happy that the advisor would get paid uh, the trailer on the, the, uh, the ETFs if, if there are any, but there wouldn't be a lot of buy and sells. Anyway, 
for whatever reason, this particular individual's company insisted that they move the whole thing to an asset-based uh, model. And when I did the math on that, it was like, well, gee, this is going to cost me a fair bit of money. And uh, at the same time, I already had a, um, a fee-for-service advisor, Fred Kirby, who doesn't take clients anymore. He's, he's retired pretty much himself. Uh, and he was the one who taught me how remotely, because I only met him once in person, um, how to you know, go to the RBC Directs or the TD Waterhouses of the world and become a do-it-yourself investor, uh, making your own trades, ideally paying 10 bucks or less per trade. So that was the long and short of it. So right now, so I've always had an advisor, but the circumstances have changed over the years. Given that you've always had an advisor and given that there's a wide swath of people in Canada who work at various stages with, with various expectations of what they should be getting from an advisor. Could you perhaps offer your thoughts on how you would surmise the, the market segments itself in terms of who really works with an advisor and really needs to work with an advisor, who's a do-it-yourselfer and, and understands they should be a do-it-yourselfer, and, may, and maybe the, the two, the people who are working with an advisor but could be doing it themselves and people who are doing it themselves and could be working with an advisor. How well do you think the Canadian marketplace segments itself in terms of determining whether or not it needs advice? Well, number one, a financial journalist like myself is not a typical case because you know, even though you and I don't have a formal relationship, I'm sure if I called you up and said, John, what do you think of this or that? You'd oblige me with a pretty good answer for nothing. <laughs> but, uh, and then in return, maybe I, you know, we, I could do something for you, quote you money sense or something like that. So I can, in, in a sense, I, I have hundreds of potential financial advisors that I access through email or, or phone. So I am not by any means typical, nor do I claim to be. Um, so I think, but the average person who has a real job, you know, they're working for Bell Canada or a bank or something, and they don't really have anything to do with the financial services industry, except for they, they realize they need some help. You know, well, in that case, I think, you know, certainly a 1% fee on the basis of assets is not out of line. Uh, some would charge more and some would charge less. You know, keeping in mind that if the solution ultimately is a, is a bunch of ETFs, which is not a, not a bad way to go, uh, then you'll be paying the underlying ETF fee, typically 20 basis points, plus whatever fee that you negotiate with the, the advisor. And I don't think, I mean, if it's just the investments, I mean, you could get by with nothing but go to discount broker and something like VBAL, Vanguard's balanced ETF, you know, or XBAL or ZBAL from BMO and, and iShares, and you're paying 20, 22 basis points. And that's basically all you need from an investment perspective. Uh, it's going to give you like 3,000 plus stocks and bonds all around the world, all market caps, et cetera, uh, with regular rebalancing. So it can be that simple at that level, but that doesn't mean you know anything about, uh, you know, life insurance. Do I need it? Do I need annuities? How do I um, optimize my asset allocation across uh, different accounts, you know, registered, non-registered, TFSAs, all that. Um, financial planning in the long run where you start thinking about spousal RSPs and how do I balance income from my spouse and maybe make provisions for my children in the untimely event of one's demise. I think it's though in those all those other cases, you could pretty well make a case for 1% being a fee that's reasonable on assets, provided that the person, and then most of them do, need all these other things apart from just the idea of like, I'm just going to invest in VBAL and, and be done with it.
Right. And, and provided, of course, that those things are actually being offered by the advisor because some advisors just do the investing. They don't have a financial planning overlay. They just, they just take care of that. But if you can do more, obviously, if you can amortize the price you're paying over a wider range of more comprehensive holistic services, it makes it a little bit easier to swallow, especially if the advisor is working uh, with non-registered assets because that, then part of the advisor's fee can be tax deducted as well. So it can, you know, can be deducted from your taxes, which makes it maybe even a little bit lower uh, on an after-tax basis. Thinking about how different people view the quality of advice, uh, you and I have both been mostly favorable about advisors, but we've also both been critical of advisors from time to time. Could you offer your, your take on maybe the best and the worst of what you see with, uh, with the advice industry in Canada? And, and if there are certain biases that you see within the advice industry, what are they and, and why do you think they might still be persisting? Yeah, well, again, I think it, it all depends. Are, are, are we talking about um, somebody who's like a, a mutual fund dealer association? Do they still call it that? I guess the, the whole thing. Let's, let's, let's yeah. go through the whole gamut. Yeah, I mean, Bert, I, I, when I first started in the industry, actually, I think I believe I was with one of your uh, employers at one point. And the, at that point, I didn't know any better. As I said, I moved from writing about technology to writing about money. And the mutual fund seemed kind of interesting to me at the time. Probably the idea was introduced to me, me from reading David Chilton's A Wealthy Barber. Mm -hmm. um, it took a while to realize that, you know, because I, I actually wrote these mutual fund guides, smart funds. After about five years, I, I, I sort of thought to myself, gee, I wonder, is, is the fra very phrase smart funds smart an oxymoron? Funds, oxymoron. <laughs> And, uh, and and gradually I learned about indexing and ETFs and so now my and and there was a lot of I, I, actually I wrote a book with another couple of people um, called the wealthy boomer life after mutual funds which sort of described my own um, transition from what seemed to be a little bit high price because as you know and you've written about it I'm sure um, Canada's mutual fund fees if they're hitting at twenty two. 250 basis points thereabouts for a balanced portfolio, or let's say it's two nowadays. There were studies, uh, was it from Harvard and other places, showing that these were among the most expensively ma actively managed mutual funds in the world, certainly compared to the States and probably Britain and other places. Um, so unfortunately for Canadian um, financial planners who relied only on selling mutual funds, I think that would be a tough thing for them the ones who are ahead of the curve, like yourself, um, at least went to things like DFA, which were a reasonable fees and, and, and well-managed, or they went to and or uh, to actual ETFs, where the, a typical ETF, as you know, would be a fee of between 0 0.2 and 0.5%, depending on what you're getting, compared to two to two and a half. So, you know, basically five times cheaper if, if you do the math, at least if you did the math for me, John, you'd probably tell me that. Um, so, uh, so the do-it-yourself crowd, I think, I mean, what I write about and uh, the wealthy boomer and then subsequently the independence hub tends to be these do-it-yourself investors who they're quite happy to um, buy individual stocks, even though, you know, Larry Swedro and other people, Charles Ellis, have written books calling it, you know, the loser's game, stock picking. Doc picking. Uh, I think a lot of them have come to this model of, um, I'm going to have ETF, Corn Explorer, so I'm going to have my ETFs as my core, um, but I may, ha I may sort of super pick a, a few 
quality, obviously, household name dividend paying stocks, you know, like the Magnificent Seven tech stocks um, or uh, Canadian bank stocks and BC. You know, you almost think you don't really need to uh, anybody to tell you that those are going to be good buy and hold investments. So for me, it's do it yourself. Ideally, I feel only advisor or somebody who runs a newsletter who you trust and have met to kind of guide you. As I say, use the word guide as opposed to advice, where you have to be actually licensed you know, by IROC. You have to be uh, a financial planner, a CFP, a CFA, all those good credentials, which the more they have, the better from the consumer's point. Sure. What about bias? Do you think uh, advisors have a certain bias in the advice they give? Or, uh, and specifically, do you think there are maybe mutual fund uh, representatives today that wouldn't recognize the, ox the oxymoron of the, of the phrase smart funds? You, do you see that? And, and, and similarly, what about with the individual do-it-yourself investors? Do you think they have biases? Are they perhaps overconfident or are they susceptible to recency and, and availability and the things that might make it simple but not necessarily correct? Well, I'd say the, you know, I, I, you've written the book, Bullshift. So the, as I understood it, it took me a, a week or two to understand the phrase, but it, as I understand it, it's having a, an optimistic bias on the head on exhibited by the financial professionals, um, they tend to be, as you know, pro stocks in the you know Jeremy Siegel's stocks for the long run. That seems to be the bible of this camp, and you know maybe it's true that in the long run stocks do outperform um, bonds and cash. Uh, on the other hand, everything I've seen and why I mentioned VBAL or XBAL is I think most people need a, a roughly a 60-40 stock bond split, and um, but I think going back to bias, if, if the advisor in the old days, at least, it seemed like they were paid a little better, if they uh, if they, they convinced or persuaded the, their consumer, the customer to be mostly in stocks and equities. So I guess there would be a bias against GICs because they don't pay much, if anything, to the advisor, even though right now you can get 5% on a GIC. So arguably, if you're ever going to be in GICs, guaranteed investment certificates, now would be a time to put a portion of your fixed income exposure into such products laddered between one and five years. Um, our, our, our financial advisors who are paid by commission or even having, or even if they're uh, asset based, um, are they biased in favor of stocks for the long run and stocks always go up? Do they sincerely believe it is best for the client? Or is it best for is it best for the client's retirement, or is it best for their client, their own retirement? Um, I don't have that cynical view of human nature. So I think ninety five percent of financial advisors do do act in that in behalf and the best interest of their clients. Uh, but you know there are always the odd case. You'll see the OSC will nail somebody every year for some abuse of of the book. So yeah, my view is that the actual number is more than ninety nine percent in terms of intent. You know, advisors have good intentions, but there are certain advisors that, despite having good intentions, might have blind spots, might have biases that they're unaware of, and they might do things that are unwittingly inappropriate. But it's not because they're trying to be nefarious; it's they're they're doing what they think is right, and they just what they think is right is not, in fact, what is actually right. So it's interesting. What about expected returns? Uh, again, I want to compare and contrast because you you've got a unique window to the advice industry, but also the do-it-yourself industry. Do you think, uh, the do-it-yourself investors, do you think ordinary investors have higher expected returns when they work on their own? 
or if they work with an advisor, will the advisor cause that person's expectation for what the future might hold to involve a return that is higher or lower than what the person had before they met the advisor? Well, I, I, I guess advisors, I can see they'd be quite frustrated with all the do-it-yourselfers on the internet talking about, you know, ad nauseum about fees and Canada's expensive mutual funds and all that. You know, I mean, purely on the arithmetic, I guess if you take a, uh, an in, a purely index solution, let's say Vanguard's VEQT, 100% equities or, or the equivalent of BMO or iShares, um, you're talking maybe 20 basis points. So you could argue that you're getting the market and you're not subtracting 2% from that. So if you go right, conversely to uh, to a mutual fund salesperson who has you in, even if it's 100% stocks, equities, but an equity fund, you know, things like emerging markets, even ETFs, et cetera, tend to be, or mutual funds certainly tend to be a little more expensive than the broadly based uh, sort of US equity funds or North American equity funds. And the more they throw you at specialized, even in ETFs, if you keep on going after like semiconductor ETF and theme ETFs, and now AI ETFs, et cetera, well, lo and behold, those things are charging 75 basis points instead of the 20 basis points that a broadly diversified low cost ETF uh, has. So in, what are the returns? I mean, I, presumably uh, when you talked about uh, earlier, uh, deducting the cost of, of some of the advice on the non-registered portfolio. Well, that's that's a real gain. Um, a lot of advisors, even even in uh, F-class mutual funds or uh, what's the capital class? What are they called? Those uh, the, the the funds that uh, that are optimized across um, for capital gains and losses in a non-registered portfolio. Yeah, corporate class. Um, that's another way that you can pretty quickly get that one or two percent that you paid on the pure fees level back in terms of tax efficiency. Um, okay, so so let me see if I can ask it, ask the question this way: If if you're a do-it-yourselfer and you're working with an advisor, um, to what extent do you change your underlying investments? Uh, do you switch from funds to ETFs or ETFs to funds or stocks to ETFs or what have you? And then you've do your expectations for the returns that you're going to have, let's say you go from a, a U.S. equity mutual fund to a U.S. equity ETF, and even when you hold the cost of the advice constant, the difference in price might be, say, 1%, because you got to pay the 1% advisory fee either way. Um, does that person then say, oh, I've just reduced my cost by 1%, therefore I've just increased my expected return by 1%. How many investors do you think go through that? Because the logic is, is pretty much irrefutable, but I don't know that I see a lot of people that actually think that way. Yeah, the, um, the, um, it's been a couple of years now, you tell me, um, since um, the, the, the ET, even the ETF statements, you, aren't, they're required to show what the actual cost is. So if, if, when people say, you know, in the old days, the, the mutual fund industry got criticized because you get a, a naive customer saying, well, I don't pay anything because they don't actually see the fee coming deducted from their account. Like if you have a million dollars and you're paying 1%, then that's, what is that, 10,000 10, a year? 10,000 a year. And, and, and it might be 20,000 a year. So, I mean, that, I mean, 20,000 a year, that's like, you know, more than 1,500 bucks a month. That's real money coming out of your pocket and in somebody else's pocket. I think the, the do-it-yourself crowd can figure it out pretty quickly that, uh, but may, may, maybe they can have a core 
um, which are really low cost fees, maybe with a, let's go back to the 0.2% that they can live with. Uh, that's a fifth of the 10,000, so 2,000 a year. Yeah, that's that's sustainable. And then you may build, you may buy individual stocks and dividend paying stocks and the odd, you know, theme ETF that pays, costs more, maybe pays more, but you're doing that um, in the expectation that the bet on whatever it is, semiconductors or AI, is going to more than pay for the extra cost um, that the that ETF uh, brings with it. What about the notion of behavior modification? A lot of advisors will say, I'm a behavioral coach. I can help my clients uh, do a better job of reaching their goals because I can avoid where the skeletons are buried. I can, I can help them. Again, I want to compare and contrast uh, because if you have this unique experience, do you think uh, advisors help or hurt or maybe not neither in terms of changing the behavior of, a, of a, an investor? And maybe let's, let's say if you take it from the perspective of the opposite of what you say, you've gone from being a person who had advice who went from do-it-yourselfer. Let's say you're going from a do-it-yourselfer, you've been doing it yourself for a while, you decide that you need an advisor, so you work to an advisor, to, to work with an advisor um, to what extent do you think that advisor will be able to modify your behavior in either direction? And if it's good or bad, would you even try to weigh in on how much good or how much bad is being done? Is it a half a percent? Is it a percent uh, annually? Uh, I wonder if you've got a thought on that. Well, I think in, in this case, you're basically having a, an ex-do-it-yourself investor who's decided to fire themselves for their yeah. ongoing incompetence. And usually, I mean, you know, any do-it-yourself or has definitely lost money. I could, I can give you even now examples where I, I, mean, I like bought Lordstown Motors, <laughs> which was basically went bankrupt and you know, lost every penny. Another bad example, I'm ratting on myself, is buying a, a Russia ETF because I thought it would be a good oil play about a month before the Ukraine invasion. Invasion. Those are those are two that went down to zero. Now, fortunately, I also don't believe in having big bets. So these are small bets. It would be nice if the money were still there, but it isn't. So I mean, there are days I, I certainly look back and say, you know, I, I should fire myself, and uh, you know, go with John DeGoey or anybody else uh, who could save me from myself. Um, so the the question is, okay. But then again, I, I, I'm sort of contradicting myself. They said, well, I don't need to be buying Lordstown Motors or some specialized ETF where I'm bringing on way too much political risk or single con concentration risk. I already said, all you need is VBAL or ZBAL or XBAL uh, and, and be done with it. Um, but it's, it's a lot easier to, to say, in theory, that's all you need to do. I, I, unfortunately, I think and I think a lot of the do-it-yourself investors that are on the internet are a victim of this too. They look at this almost as a form of uh, entertainment, uh, not quite up there with gambling and going to Vegas. Um, and, and and if they're doing, you know, they're on Twitter and social media, they like to say, hey, I bought Nvidia or I sold something bad just in, in time. So to the extent that they've fired themselves and found an advisor who can say, look, this is your money. This is your future. This is not a toy. This is not Las Vegas. If you want to gamble, why don't you go to Las Vegas? You probably save money in the long run. Um, so yeah, I think uh, if you think you if you're thinking of firing yourself, you probably have good reason to do so, and you should therefore be a good candidate for finding a a, a good professional, uh, ethical financial advisor who charges a reasonable fee. They've got to be in business, or else they can't really provide any advice. 
so like anything, there's a, there's, there are compromises. So for the past six or seven years, or maybe even longer, I don't know, you've been running the, the Findependence Hub. And it's been out doing what it does, helping to educate uh, the Canadian public about much of the things that you and I have been discussing in this podcast today. Can you tell people about the Findependence Hub, what it is, what, what your mandate is, and, and how it's been going? Yeah, it's been yeah, almost, it's been uh, almost 10, 10 years now. I had left uh, the full-time employee of MoneySense in 2014. And so and one of the things I did, there's a bit of a financial aspect to this where I was able to kind of float for a bit. And, uh, and that's when I launched the, the Findependence Hub or Financial Independence Hub. Obviously, the word Findependence is short for Financial Independence. I've written a book, Findependence Day, which really is just Financial Independence Day. You could say it's about retirement, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, and as you know, because you've I've often written uh, run hub, blogs that you've written, either directly for the hub or more often probably for one of your employers. Um, so what we have there is I, I'll write the odd piece, one or two a week maybe, and the stuff I write for Money Sense I'll, I'll, I'll put on as well. Um, but if, there's a lot of uh, executives from the uh, mutual fund or the ETF industry. There are a lot, you know, like vice presidents of marketing or ideally investment councils uh, and financial advisors like yourself. Um, so these people have credentials that I don't have. I don't have a CFA or a CFB or anything like that, but I'm happy to run blogs by people who do, because I, I would hope that anybody who writes for the hub has at least one of those two, if not both. Um, so, and, and my, because when I was at the Globe and Mail, my motto as a reporter was a story a day keeps the editor away for the longest time. And my self-imposed goal was having a blog every day, every business day. Now, now that I've reached age 70, I'm trying to slow down a bit and I may every some weeks just go four times a week, uh, taking the Wednesday off. But for the most part, and, and of course it's free. So all you need is an email. Uh, I, re I realize a lot of people get a lot of emails these days. So it's one more email people may welcome or delete. Yeah, and that's their prerogative. All right, let's, uh, we're getting toward the end here. So the thing that I do with all my guests at the end of my podcast is I have two sections where I like to ask them what their thoughts are. And the first is a section that I call, that's bullshit. Can you think of anything in the industry that you think could be done differently and, and specifically that could be done better? What, what, what exactly is, is sticking in your craw these days about financial services? Well, I think we've touched on it already, and I think some of these theme ETFs, I think, are a little overdone. I mean, AI is the big thing right now, but ironically, you probably did better on AI by having the QQQs, the NASDAQ 100 ETF that would have hold the Magnificent Seven, as they call them, Microsoft, NVIDIA, all those guys, uh, as opposed to supposed uh, AI play. I, I had some little robotics and AI theme fund I experimented with two or three years ago. Last I checked, it hasn't done it anywhere near as well anywhere near as well as like the QQQs would have. Um, so I, th I think there's this, this danger in, we, we, I think, uh, who's it? Uh, Eric Kirshner used to talk about gambler's ruin, you know, wh where you, you, you have a good idea in a sector. You want to pick this particular stock, let's say NVIDIA for AI, um, but instead of uh, buying just the, the one stock, in which case you could be wrong, and you buy a basket of all the uh, AI stocks. Um, but then the basket, as I said with my Russia ETF example, you could buy an entire country and get wiped out. So I think you, you can't, I, I think there's a bit too much of an emphasis on these 
theme of the day ETFs, they tend to be like three times more expensive than the broadly based diversified ones. Um, so I think that is an example of a bull shift. If, if you get the ideas, not from the internet, but from some advisor for, who, for whatever reason, thinks it'd be really good to have all these theme ETFs, um, you, you might just as well just stick with a low cost ETF. Okay, well that brings me then to the second half, which is shift happens. So you've just identified a problem, which is the, the concentration into thematic ETFs and thematic investment products. Shift happens is, if it were up to you, if John Chevro could have a wave, wave a magic wand and, and fix the problem that he's just identified, how would you fix it? What would you do to actually deal with the problem of concentration in, in the, the, the ascendancy of thematic products? Well, I think thematic product, it, it, to me, is, it's, it's just another version of, of single stock risk where you buy, you know, put all your money on a, I mean, I, we could go into IPOs and, and SPACs and cryptocurrency, but we, that maybe some other uh, show we can do that. But as, as to the solution, solution to the problem to the problem. We were, we're talking about, um, I think you're safe as long as you don't have more, I mean, I, a lot of people would say, well, you only need 20 or 30 stocks if you're a stock picker and not, no more than 5% in any one of them. I would take that and, and make it like 1%. I, I did personally invest a bit in crypto and more or less broke even because I was early, but also not a little late getting out. Um, but for me, 5% would be too high in any, any one speculative or theme ETF or crypto, et cetera. Like 1%, I think, is reasonable. And then it's the old... If you get a double, sell half, and these kind of basic risk protection measures, which if you're not familiar with them, you probably do need an advisor because I'm sure you would be able to tell people exactly how to deal with uh, this situation. Perfect. Thanks so much, John. It's been a real pleasure. I, I always enjoy my conversations with you. We should probably do it again uh, sometime in the not too distant future. I want to wish you all the success in the world with what you're doing with Independence Hub. Uh, you've been a real uh, inspiration for the industry because you've sort of navigated from, from being outside of the industry to, to being a journalist for a paper, to being an editor for a magazine, and now going off on your own and, and doing all these other things along the way. Fascinating story. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for including me, John. John DeGuy is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism by Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM.